In the spirit of uh, kind of a football day, it feels like, man, our first half, we went so hard and it was so good and I'm tired, but we're going to go strong for the second half and man, I feel, I feel really, really good. So um, on top of everything that Tim said, um, I, I want to give some sweet love uh, to some, a couple other people as well. The first one, just our, uh, our music team has just been epic and JJ... I'm just going to throw this out there. I don't know where you went, Jade. You're somewhere. Here he is. This guy has been stretched more than any of us probably through this whole thing, trying to figure out. His job description just went like times 10. So great job, Jade, and the rest of the team up here. I mean, so many different players are having to come up and be a part of, of the team up here. And so thank you. And, and really, we couldn't do church without, obviously, everyone. And so it's just an encouraging season right now. Uh, we had to, the, the, the inn was full for service. We had to kick people out of here. So that's a good thing. And then obviously, uh, trying to connect and love on people who are online. It's been so good. And then uh, I think Tim said this more first service than second service, but it's been sweet working with our lead team. Um, we've got a, a great group of people and uh, we've been able to expand it out a little bit at times and bringing all the spouses together and just kind of being a unified front all together and really seeking God's leading for our church. And so it's been a hard season, but my goodness, it's been a good season. So praise God for that. Um, enough of the celebrations. Here we are. Let's, uh, let's go ahead. We're going to be uh, kind of finishing up in some ways our series of Turning Hearts, and next week will be the real uh, finish of it. But we, we are in this series talking about um, what it means for God to turn our hearts and what it means for us to turn our hearts towards Him. And kind of all in the context of coming out of 2020, right, where um, we came through a season of a lot of challenge, of a lot of change, of a lot of hardship, a lot of new decisions to be made, and um, a lot of division, a lot of tension uh, in all kinds of areas of life that we're all still uh, trying to navigate because it's not over. We're still trying to figure out what's what and what's left and right and up and down. Uh, and as we're trying to figure that out, it feels like this next year is a really important year. Right, we talked about the fact that uh, the, this word important is a word that we see all over the place when it comes to rebuilding and reestablishing, whether it's uh, the importance of relationships or the importance of, of personal connection or the importance of economics or the importance of education. You know, there's so many things that feel so important this year. And as a church, what we want to do is talk about the importance of our faith this year. Right? Because a lot of our, our normal rhythms and practices and habits have been shaken this last year. Right? Starting in March of last year where um, kind of the, the normalcy of coming to church was uh, put to a halt and then the normalcy of gathering with people and uh, kind of what that looks like for a lot of us is put to a halt. And so this next year as things are kind of reestablishing some normalcies, we're trying to figure out you know, which direction we are going to go. And, and we've said that it really feels like a fork in the road moment. Uh, not just for all kinds of different parts of life, but primarily to, for this area in our life of rebuilding uh, around our faith. And so we've asked ourselves kind of a question. We've stolen it from 30, from 3,000 years ago from this man named Elijah. And ultimately it comes down to this one phrase that if God is God, then we need to follow him. And if he isn't, then go ahead and live however you want. But if God is God, we've talked about this idea that we have a moral obligation to give our lives to try to pursue what following him would look like, right? If, if there's a God that exists who, who not only um, created the world, but who intimately cares about me as an individual, who intimately cares about you, who I can know, 
then I, I have this obligation to try to follow him and obey him and know him. And so we're kind of looking at that, that moment of deciding, am I going to follow him or am I going to go somewhere else? And in order to kind of be in that spot where we're figuring out where we're going to go, we've got to ask, where are we? Right, so where are we in our faith? It's a question that we've asked for a couple weeks in the beginning of this series. You know, for some of us, where we are in our faith is this is brand new. This is just exploratory land. And exploring can be fun, but it also can be uncomfortable because there's a lot of unknowns. And anytime you start exploring into a whole new realm of life that you're not normally accustomed to in terms of like a spirituality and things that aren't physical, it feels a little different, a little unique. And, uh, you know, we want to be sensitive to that, like to people who are coming into this building who aren't used to this type of thing, aren't used to singing songs together and listening to someone talk like this. This is very uncomfortable. Or, or if you're watching online, these are, these are some new ideas. And I've talked to a number of people over the last few months that this is brand new. And so you're trying to figure out which which way am I going to go in this new exploratory season of my life? And that's a good spot to be in. That's a really good spot to be in. We want everyone to feel comfortable in that spot. And we want to keep throwing you little things, little pieces of truth to be holding on to so that you can uh, experience what it's like to know God. Because for a lot of us in here, we know what that's like. And it's been amazing for our lives. You know, for others of us, we're in here and kind of that fork in the road moment is we might be looking in the mirror at our spiritual lives and saying, man, what I have is I have a bit of a borrowed faith. Right, a faith that, you know, maybe was borrowed from my own past. Right, a season in my life where maybe 10, 15 years ago, I, I felt like I really knew who God was and I was pursuing Him. But for the last 10, 15, 20, 30 years, who knows? Maybe you're, you're a bit on cruise control and you're not really growing and nothing's really new, but you're kind of just living off of old gas that you put in the tank a long time ago. Or maybe you have a borrowed faith from a, a spouse. Right? For, you may be coming to church for years even potentially just because your spouse kind of wants to and you're kind of tagging along and you know, maybe that faith is a bit of a borrowed faith from then or a borrowed faith from your parents. Right? I mean, this is true for everyone who leaves the nest at some point. You know, some of you, you need to leave that nest. Parents get an amen. But some of us are trying to figure out like, man, what is this thing for me? Like, what do I believe? I know my parents believed in this and they brought me to church every week, but as I'm entering into this adult space and in my life, as I'm trying to make my own decisions, like, do I believe this? You know, the truth is some of us have a borrowed faith from someone else's faith. You know, we have a faith through a certain pastor. We have a faith through a certain uh, preacher and a certain author or a certain YouTuber. You know, we may look at someone and say, oh, I have a faith primarily just through this person. In this kind of decisive moment in life right now where we're deciding to go one way or the other, we got to figure out, is this really for me? You know, for some of us, we've been um, kind of just cruising our faith, nothing hot, nothing cold, just kind of cruising along. And, and we want this to be a season, an opportunity where we're going to dive a little bit deeper and we're going to talk about that today. For some of us, maybe we're mature in our faith and things are going well, but we need to try to figure out how are we reproducing ourselves this next year? What does it look like to pass on our faith to the next generation? Because that is the sign of true maturity, right? It's reproduction. So ultimately, as we look at these words of Elijah, these words, this challenge to this massive, massive nation in, in, uh, in this bold way where these people are kind of not following the Lord the way they should be, where he says, if God is God, follow him. So what does that look like? What does it look like to follow God? What does it look like to have our hearts turned? We've, we've talked about some of us need our hearts turned. We need to have that moment where we believe that Jesus is God. Right? That, that's a massive turning point moment in every single life. We call that salvation. That's a moment in time, this, this salvation piece where we are saved. Right? And that's simply God giving us a new heart, giving us his spirit within us. And some of us, we've got to ask, man, have I had that moment? Have I believed that? Have I confessed that Jesus is God? And man, again, we've all been there at some point. 
So as we start 2021, you got to ask yourself to some degree, do I believe that? Has my heart been turned? And then for the rest of us who, who we've had that moment before, um, what we're talking about is us turning our own hearts. We're not sitting back saying, God, turn my heart. The invitation is God is in us. We've got the Holy Spirit in us. We've been given a new heart. The heart of stone is gone. We've got a heart of flesh. And God says, now your job is to turn your heart towards me because I'm right here. I'm not far from you. I'm near. It's you who needs to pay attention. And so what we're talking about in this series is like primarily for the believer, what is our role, right? What is our responsibility to turn our hearts towards God? And how do we do that? Because we've learned that it takes work and it takes effort. It's not easy. It takes intentionality. And we're not used to these types of things in life. We're we're used to kind of just floating along, cruising, and hoping everything goes okay. Right, a number of years ago, um, I got my first guitar. How many of you have ever gotten a guitar in your life? Right, a number of you, right? I remember the first guitar I ever got. It was a Mexican Fender Strat. It was awesome. Sunburst, maple fret, humbucker. Loved it. Got it in high school and uh, started playing a little bit, but really not that much. Like, the truth is, I learned five or six chords, which apparently in the Christian world is all you need to play most Christian music. But um, you chuckle because you know that that's true. But um, didn't practice a whole lot. Um, just played a little bit here and there. I was involved in a bunch of other things. I had friends and uh, played another instrument and was doing sports and trying to find a wife. But um, ult- that's funny. Um, ultimately, um, you know, would, would you say that I was a guitar player? Well, kind of, like I had a guitar, like it was okay, like I could play for about 15 minutes, maybe 20 minutes at max, and then like all my skills were pretty much done at that point, and, and the truth is like over the last 20 years, like my guitar playing skills are, are right about there, like I never really practice, and uh, I love like when JJ wants to meet, I'll grab his guitar and kind of pretend like I know what I'm doing and talking to him for a little bit, but you know, you listen to me for about 10 minutes, and it's like, okay, you're kind of doing the same thing over and over and over and the, the irony is I actually have like a really, really nice guitar. Um, a couple of years, like last year, someone from our church, I'm not going to drop any names. Some of you would know this person. Um, they gave me a beautiful, like custom Martin 12 string, beautiful. It's way nicer than JJ's guitar. Um, <laughs> but JJ can play it so much better than me. But um, I'm just really not that good. I, I'm really not. I'm not a good guitar player. And I think sometimes when we think about our faith, um, it's like God gives us this gift. He gives us this gift that we call salvation, and then he invites us to, to learn how to use it. And I think sometimes we think about our faith, and we think of it kind of in the way that if someone gave us a gift, we would just like expect us to be really good at it. Right? We just expect, like, oh, I'm just going to be really good at this faith thing, instead of having to put the effort and the time and the work in to get good at it. Or for some of us, we may see it like uh, you get a gift like a guitar and, and you kind of watch all these professionals who are really, really good and you think, like, why even try? I'm never going to be that good. Right? Some of us think that way in our faith. We think like, man, I'm never going to be like this person in the faith. I'm never going to be that, so I don't know. I think there's also a little bit of a half-truth that's kind of been going around in Christian circles that, for the analogy's sake, would say, hey, um, when God sees me, he actually sees his son, and his son is an incredible guitar player, so why even try myself? And while there is some truth to that, I think there's a little bit of harm in that, too, that says that I don't have a part to play in my growth, in my sanctification, in this process of learning to, to see what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus, And so today we're going to talk about, well, what does it look like to practice in my faith so I can be an adequate follower of Jesus to where my faith isn't 15 minutes long like Josh's guitar playing, 
right? To where my faith goes deep, where I have something that I'm growing in and learning in. So in order to do that, we, we do this primarily through this, um, this training, these ideas called the spiritual disciplines. But as we get into this, I'm going to start and I'm going to ask that we'd stand up and we're going to listen to some words from Paul that he gives to um, a young man named Timothy, talking about what it looks like for us to be men and women who practice, who train to be followers of Jesus. So I'm going to pick it up in, I'm going to be all over the place today. And that's okay, but I'm going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 4 real quick here, verses 7 through 10. We see this kind of at the latter part of verse 7. It says, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. He says, train yourself. He continues on in verse 10. For to this we toil and strive, right? We work hard. It doesn't just happen. We have to work at it. And why? Because we have set our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can take a seat. So we get this very clear picture that our faith is a gift and it's a gift that God gives us just like this beautiful guitar that someone gave me. But it's something that as I've been given to it, I have something to learn. I have something to do. I, I need to train myself. I need to toil, the text says. I need to strive. And why? Not to earn love, not to earn favor, um, but because I've been loved, because I have been favored, because I have been given this gift. And so what we're talking about in this series is all these things about training and practicing, and we call these the spiritual disciplines, right? These are things like Bible reading, things like practicing Sabbath, practicing silence and solitude, practicing celebration, practicing lavish generosity, right? Some of these things are things that happen individually. We need to do them on our own. Some of these things happen corporately. We have to do them as a whole, and, and they're, not just, uh, they're not just intellectual uh, little um, ideas that we kind of put into our brains that we can make ourselves smart. These are practices that we can do that will train our bodies, which train our souls. So this gathering right now is part of training our souls that we need one another. When we sacrifice our time and when we gather as a whole and we sing and, and we open up God's word, we're telling our bodies that this is an important priority. So there are things we do individually. There are things we do corporately. There are also things that we do um, out of refrain. So we don't do certain things. We talked about those last week. And there are things that we engage in. So today what we're going to talk about is we're going to talk about kind of the corresponding discipline to each of the disciplines that we talked about last week. So last week we talked about fasting. How many of you, just curious, tried fasting last week? Okay, four people. Awesome. Okay, that's not bad. That's not bad. First service was two. We're doubling it up here. No, it's... It's hard. It's good. It's really hard. I admitted last week, like, it's something that I never look forward to, but it's something that's really, really good. This whole idea that we go without food, right? Whether it's for a meal, whether it's for 24 hours, whether it's through an extended period of time, all to remind our bodies that we exist um, primarily by sources outside of ourselves, that we are dependent human beings, right? Because when you go without a meal, your body quickly reminds you, you need something that you yourself cannot provide. And namely, we're reminding our souls that we exist because God exists and we need him to nourish our souls and our lives. Today, though, we're going to talk about the corresponding discipline with fasting, and that is feasting. 
This is something that uh, I, I got to be honest, it's, it's something that my wife and I, at least I don't think we've done very well, uh, particularly in terms of how the Bible invites us into this very specific way of feasting. And we're good at having a good time. Do not get me wrong. We have a ton of fun in the Carstensen home, but this is something that I'm excited to start implementing into our life. And it's a practice that's been happening for 3,500 years. For 1,500 years before Jesus, this whole nation of Israel has been practicing these huge feasts, these annual feasts, ultimately to say to God, God, you are good. God, you provide us with everything that we need, and I'm going to lavishly sacrifice some pretty big, significant financial dollars so that I can remind my body once again that you are the sustainer and the giver of everything. And so what we're going to do, we're going to do just a quick kind of journey through some of these major feasts. Again, there were seven major feasts that for a very long time were practiced, starting with the first biggest feast that you might remember in our study of Exodus. This is the feast of the Passover, right? So if you go back to Exodus chapter 12, you've got this nation that's been in slavery for 400 years, and God ultimately frees them from slavery. Um, But in the final act of God's judgment, we have this night of Passover, where God essentially went through and um, executed judgment on uh, those in Egypt uh, who did not have a sacrificial lamb's blood spread over their doorstep. And so once a year, God commands his people to have this feast, to have this celebration, to remember God's exercising of his judgment and his grace for the people that he passed over. So we pick this up in Exodus chapter 12. I'm just going to read a quick verse here that talks about the remembrance of this feast that they practice called Passover every year. It says this, it says, this shall be a day for you, a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. So every single year they, they had a feast that uh, reminded them of God's provision. And, you know, what's fascinating about a lot of these feasts is how they correspond to Jesus and his life and some of the key moments in his life. Because you remember what was so significant about the moment of Passover in terms of Jesus' life and death. It, it was the night that Jesus was arrested. It was the first night of Passover. And so we're going to see as this, this progression of feasts happen, some of the significant moments as well. And so again, major moment in Jesus' life when he was arrested was this would have been the national celebration of this feast called Passover. The very next day was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We can read about this in Leviticus 23. In fact, this week, if you want to go back, you can read all of these feasts in Leviticus 23 in greater or lesser detail, but they're all kind of stacked in right before you, all seven of them. We read this in verses 5 through 7. I'll start in verse 6. And on the 15th day of the same month of the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. Right? This, this Feast of Unleavened Bread was this moment where this nation is leaving Egypt and they had to leave so quickly that they didn't have enough time to put yeast in their bread to let it rise. This was God saying, I'm providing for you, but it's going to be quick. You've got to leave right now. And so every single year, the day after Passover, they would celebrate this feast of unleavened bread. And surprisingly enough, this was the day that Jesus was killed, which is interesting because perpetually throughout the Gospels, you have Jesus saying, I am the bread of life. John's going to talk about this a lot in his Gospel that we'll be studying soon. So again, significant moment in the nation of Israel, significant feast. The whole country is kind of stopped, paused, looking at this feast of unleavened bread. And on that night, Jesus is killed. 
The third feast that we read about is the Feast of First Fruits. Uh, this happened three days after uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Uh, and this would have been the day that Jesus rose from the dead as well. This would have been an annual feast where they're thanking God for the provision of all kinds of their crops, of their food. Uh, obviously, in an agrarian society, uh, food was really, really important. Uh, we didn't have the same storage capacities as we do right now. And so every year, they're thanking God for the feast for that season. And they had a couple different feasts where they thanked God for his provision in food. So uh, ironically enough, we've got more language about Jesus being the first fruit. We read this in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, that Jesus is the first fruit among the dead. Again, a massive holiday, Jesus is raised from the dead. Fifty days after that particular holiday, we have the Feast of Weeks. Um, this is also is another word for Pentecost, or Pentecost is another word for that, uh, referring back to those 50 days. Pentecost, again, was a significant holiday. This was the second uh, feast that was celebrating the harvest for 50 days after the first fruits uh, was the grain and harvest. And so um, 50 days later, after Jesus rose from the dead, you might remember something big happened. Right in Acts chapter 2, we got this day of Pentecost where everyone was there and Peter stands up and he gives the first ser- the kind of Christian sermon and saying that Jesus is God and thousands of people get saved and they spread the gospel throughout the world. But again, this was happening around one of these major feasts. The fifth one is the Feast of Trumpets. You can read about this in Leviticus 23 verses 24 on the Feast of Trumpets, this would have been the first uh, kind of New Year's Eve party, if you will. This was the beginning of the first day of the annual civic calendar. And um, they say that trumpets were blasted for the entirety of the day, going back to a time and season, back to Moses and Sinai, where trumpets were blasted as God, um, the invitation for God to come speak to the people um, was very present after this trumpet blast. And so the thinking was, God, in the beginning of the year, we're going to blast trumpets all day long, and we're going to sit back and we're going to expect and we're going to hope that you would do a work, that we would hear from you, that you would lead our nation going forward. Some of this language sounds familiar as we wait for Jesus' return too, because we read this in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 52. The trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Again, kind of waiting for God to, to show up and do something and to guide and to lead, as marked every single year by this huge feast where trumpets were blasted. Two more, we got the Day of Atonement. Right, this is a, a different feast than some of the other ones in terms of uh, it was more of a, a feast of repentance, a feast where the whole nation would come together. It was a solemn day. It was a sad day. It was a day of confession, of saying, God, we have not loved you like we should. We have not followed you like we should. Um, this is the, the one day of the year that the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies. They would kill a bull. They would kill a goat. They would splatter its blood on uh, the altar there. Uh, they would also take a goat and they would send it out into uh, the wilderness by itself as the scapegoat. Again, we see language in Hebrews chapter 9 that Jesus is this better sacrifice, that his blood was better than the blood of any bull or any goat. But again, this moment, this feasting moment of God's provision. Lastly, we see the, the Feast of Booths. Um, or the Feast of Tabernacles, if you will. Every year for a week, the nation would go outside in their backyard and they'd sleep out in tents. Right? I don't know that I'm recommending this to anyone, but it was this kind of physical reminder of God's people going in the wilderness, not having a home, but wandering around, asking for God to lead them on a daily basis, whether it was through the pillar or whether it was through the cloud of smoke, that God would lead them. And ultimately, they put themselves in this physical spot to remind their souls of God's provision. 
Each one of these was costly. Each one of these feasts took significant amount of effort. Each one of these feasts took time away from their work. In fact, it is so, like God is so serious about not working during these feasts that for every one of these, the punishment for working when there was a feast was death. It's like saying, you better be at Christmas, and if you're not there, you're going to be killed. Kind of a big deal. Lavishly celebrating God's goodness was significant. The most uh, lavish of all of these um, wasn't necessarily uh, an annual feast, if you will, but it's called the annual tithe party. You can read about the annual tithe party in Deuteronomy chapter 14, and this is, I think, probably my most favorite. Is God says to the nation of Israel, he says, here's the deal. I want you to take a tithe, which means tenth. I want you to take 10% of your annual salary, and in one party, I want you to throw an epic party, and I want you to remember me. So think about this. In America, the median salary for a household is $68,000. So God says, I want you to take 6800 bucks, and once a year, I want you to throw a party. And he tells the people, I want you to have this party where I'm going to lead you. And most of the time, it's Jerusalem. And he says, take 10% of everything that you have. And there's some interpretation uh, that people disagree with this, but, but there's a lot of uh, agreement. That's about 10%. That Take this 10%, go to Jerusalem, and have this party. And if that 10% is too much for you to carry... He says, I want you to sell it in your homeland. Take the cash. You can carry the cash. When you get there, I want you to buy stuff and listen to these words. This is scripture. He says this in verse 26 of Deuteronomy 14. Spend the money for whatever you desire. Oxen or sheep, wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves. And you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice you and your household. And why would they do that? You go back a few verses to verse 23, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. I think it's fascinating that with all of these feasts, it's a learning process. It's a process for our minds to our souls that say, when you take a huge chunk of money and you blow it all in one party, you are learning to trust that God is the one who provides for you. Man, then you get to the New Testament. You get to Jesus, who's, um, who's famous for kind of epic parties, right? We're going to launch this off uh, in four weeks from today when we're going to be in John chapter 2 of his per- first kind of public miracle of turning water into wine. He's got this reputation too. His reputation of being a party guy, of being someone who has a great time, who knows how to celebrate. I love some of these words uh, from Richard Foster. It's a book that I've recommended. A lot of you have it. Uh, listen to these words from Foster about what it means for us to celebrate. He says this, he says, far and away, the most important benefit of celebration is that it saves us from taking ourselves too seriously. This is a desperately needed grace for all those who are earnest about the spiritual disciplines. This is possibly my favorite sentence in the whole book. It is an occupational hazard of devout folks to become stuffy bores. It shall not be. Of all people, we should be the most free, the most alive, the most interesting. Celebration adds a note of gaiety, festivity, hilarity to our lives. After all, Jesus rejoiced so fully in life that he was accused of being a wine-bibber and a glutton. Most of us lead such sour lives that we cannot possibly be accused of such things. I mean, I read this to my wife last week, and she goes, he must have some lame friends. Like, truth, like... the. The invitation that God gives us is to lavishly feast 
and to remember God's goodness in our feasting. I think this is something that my wife and I are going to try to practice. We've talked about this a little bit. What is this going to look like this next year? We're going to throw some epic party at some point where we're going to bring some close friends who love the Lord. We're going to say, hey, when you come over, like, you got to write out like the things that not only you're thankful for, but the goodness of God. And we're going to go around and we are going to eat food that we normally don't eat. And we're going to drink drink that we normally don't drink. And we are going to celebrate God's goodness. And why can we do this? Right? Because listen to these words my foster as well. He says, no one would dare celebrate the Jubilee, meaning no one's going to fork out 10% of your salary unless they had a deep trust in God's ability to provide for their needs, right? Unless at this feast, if you're saying, you know what, God, this is costly, but everything that I have comes from you, you will not do this correctly, And so the invitation is to try that this year. Try something where you're lavishly celebrating. I think we're good at celebrating. All of us this afternoon, we're going to celebrate at some level if you're interested in sports and you're going to have a good time. But this isn't just a good time for a good time. It's a good time where the center of all conversation is, God, you have provided everything. God, thank you for the very breath that I have that I can enjoy the meal that is before me. The second discipline of refrain that we talked about last week was one of solitude, right? This is the idea of getting away by yourself, um, where um, you're not around others, but you're um, kind of alone here. Uh, You're alone and you are examining your soul. You're putting yourself before the Lord and you're saying, God, here's my soul. Here are my fears. Here are my insecurities. Here are my dreams. Here are my passions. And it's in solitude that God does a lot of work in us, but it's not, but we're not only called to solitude. We are called to um, a, a spiritual community. Right? We're called to a Christian word for this is fellowship. Right? The Bible talks a ton about all these one another's that we're supposed to do for one another, that we belong to one another. Right? Later this week, go read 1 Corinthians 12. It, it talks about the fact that every single person, every woman, every man, every child, every adult has a gift for one another. That I have something to offer you, that you have something to offer me, that we have something to offer one another. That we belong to a community of each other. And just like solitude is not solitude unless it's doing some soul care, community is not community unless there is some soul care interrelated with one another, right? And this happens at a level in small groups. It happens in community groups. It happens in Bible studies. And it happens in everyday conversation where you're saying, hey, Jim, how are you? I actually really, really care about you, right? And and learning what's going on with one another, right? So God's called us to be a community for one another, Dallas Willard, who also has an incredible book on the spiritual discipline, says this about our belongingness to one another. He says that there are no oughts, there are no shoulds, there are no would you pleases about this. It's just a matter of how things actually work in the new life. To be a part of God's community is to be a part of sharing our souls with one another. And it's not just to people that we're comfortable with. Right? I think sometimes in Christian circles, we can get really good at finding people who look just like us and who have the same hobbies as us and have the same interests and, and we can buddy up with them and be really good friends. And, and that's good. There's good to that. But the community of God goes beyond those barriers. And I think it's actually one of the beautiful restorative pieces of our culture right now where the only hope that we're going to have to have some sort of unity is within the church where we're going to break all the barriers that culture sets up. Because listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 about loving those who are different than us. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, 
you greet only your sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. So where are you with community right now? Where are you with fellowship? This invitation for us to be alone is the same as the invitation for us to be connected to other people. Are you being vulnerable in your life to connecting with others to where you're hearing from them and where they're hearing from you and where together we are pursuing Jesus together? The invitation is important. Lastly, we talked about the discipline of simplicity, right? We live in a culture where we always want more, like everything, nothing's ever enough. We want more, uh, more time in the day. We want more money. We want more house. We want more car. We don't necessarily always want more kids, but uh, we want more of a lot of things all the time, right? And the, the, the discipline is to be satisfied in what God's given us. And kind of the correlating discipline on the other side of that that we're going to talk about is extravagant generosity, Right? Listen to these words that Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6. He says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of life that is truly life. Right, that last phrase might sound familiar. We talked about it a little bit back in December. You know, our whole theme for this year has been live defining what it means to live. And Paul makes it very clear here. You want to be a follower of Jesus? You want to grow in your faith? You who are rich, and hello, that's most of us. This is what you are to do. You are to do good, to be extravagant in your generosity and your willingness to share. And this looks different depending upon your life stage. It looks different depending upon your bank account. But God calls each one of us to extravagant generosity. And uh, two weeks ago, my six-year-old lost both of her front teeth. It's a pretty big gap, pretty cute. Nothing cuter than a little kid with a list because they have their missing teeth. And um, she loves the fact that she loses teeth because she knows there's a tooth fairy, right? And so she comes to me and she goes, hey, dad, tooth fairy, I lost my tooth. She also knows that dad tooth fairy is pretty cheap. Dad tooth fairy usually gives about a dollar. And so she, gives, she puts a tooth under and all is good. She gets a dollar. She's pretty excited. But she also knows that grandma tooth fairy gives five dollars. And that's a lot better than Daddy Tooth Fairy. So she always calls Grandma right after she loses the tooth. It's like, lose the tooth, call Grandma. Like, immediately. This is just what happens in our home. So we're at dinner two weeks ago, and there's a letter in the mail uh, to our middle daughter, and she opens it up, and uh, out of the card comes $5. And immediately, what my daughter does is she says to her older sister, Hey, you take this $5. I know you've been wanting to buy something, and I already have 14 And I love that. And why can she do that? Why can she give away like a third of her total investment portfolio? (laughs) Because she knows that across the table is a mom and dad who are going to take care of her. She knows that she's got everything that she needs. Like eventually grandma and grandpa will probably buy her this or that. Like she'll be just fine. But she's secure and she's comfortable and she's not afraid. She's not living in fear. Because she knows, like, I've been taken care of my whole life. i got $14. I can do whatever I want. I'm living the good life. For those of us um, who are a little bit older than six, I think sometimes we need to be reminded that we can look back on our lives and say, man, God's provided. And what does it look like for us to be radically generous? To be a people who 
have life that's truly life when we are rich in good deeds, when we're generous and we're willing to share. Man, as we wrap it up, um, we're going to move into a time of communion. And in a lot of ways, communion is beautiful because it ties together all three of these disciplines, right? Because the first one is the idea of feasting. And communion happened ultimately on the first night of Passover, right? Where Jesus was with his disciples and he took a cup and he took bread and he said, this is my body, this is my blood. And so we remind ourselves of the necessary feasting that we need to do to thank God for this very sacrifice. Ultimately, disciplines are all about sacrifice, And it's not just a sacrifice for ourselves to get better at life, right? Because a lot of people do disciplines who aren't even Christians. Like, I'm going to be disciplined in my workouts. I'm going to be disciplined in this area. I'm going to be disciplined in that. But ultimately, disciplines are about sacrifice because we've been loved. And it's the only reason why any of these disciplines are worth anything because we turn our hearts, but we turn our hearts towards something. And that something is the Holy Spirit who's working and moving and is only here because of the sacrifice that Christ made for us. And so we're going to move into this time. The band's going to come up. They're going to play a special song. Um, communion is at your spot. Take that on your own um, when you feel good about it. And ultimately, we're going to sit here and we're going to say, thank you, God, for sacrificing for me and help me to turn my life to align myself with how you're moving and working. Father God, I thank you for the gift of your son. God, that gives me the motivation to do any of this. God, I I thank you for just the practical steps of what it looks like for us to work hard, to train, to toil, to strive so that I can become like you. God, we know that um, salvation is a gift and we know that when we receive this gift, the invitation is to work hard, to turn our hearts towards you who are already right here with us. God, I thank you for working in my life in such a way that, um, God, I can know you. And through this practice of celebration, through this practice of remembering, through this practice of community, God, all three of these are tied up together in this moment where we take this cup and we take this bread and we remember the sacrifice that you gave for us so that we could truly live. Lord, we love you. Amen.